Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, and welcome to the July 2023 edition of Masters of the Universe. I am Eric Kazatsky, Head of Municipal Strategy at Bloomberg Intelligence, and joined by my co-host, Karen Altamirano, also of BI. We have spent a ton of time over the past year talking about the changing landscape in the municipal asset management space, specifically lower beta options, such as exchange-traded funds and separately managed accounts. For those looking to expand or break into this space, scaling the business is the single largest pain point. Here to talk about talk to us about the challenges and highlights an off-the-shelf solution is James Morris from Investor Tools. For those of you not familiar, James is a senior vice president over at Investor Tools, now in his 22nd year with the firm. Uh, he joined in a client services capacity immediately after attending Illinois Wesleyan University as transitioned to an account management sales role in 2007. Uh, his current responsibilities include relationships with more than 35 client firms and guiding the development of the Investor Tools dealer network and doing podcasts with us. And he's here today. Welcome, James. Hey, thanks, Eric. Hey, so, look, I want to start off very macro, 10,000 foot view before we sort of dive into Investor Tools and what it is and why we care or why we should care. So, how much are you following the muni market and the rates markets right now as a data and you know, software solution provider? You know, my, I would say macro level, we're following it. Like we're always kind of aware and engaged in following the market, but yeah. um, not on necessarily like an hour by hour, day to day type of basis, but certainly uh, on a trends basis. You know, I guess my feeling is being a third party provider in the fixed income markets in a challenging volatile landscape, has that made any sort of growth for you guys harder? Or have you found more uptake as far as people wanting to buy off-the-shelf solutions rather than try and build something in-house? That's a really good question. Um, I guess in our experience, uh, market volatility tends to lead to opportunity. So um, I don't know that it's necessarily driven people to consider an off-the-shelf solution more than in-house. I think that there are dynamics there. I think that... um, the volatility has made people take a closer look at uh, their systems and whether or not they're able to kind of move with the market and adapt. And I think overall, that's probably been a good thing for us. Yeah. You know, it's Karen and I talk about this a lot. And, you know, as strategists, trying to actually do strategy work in a low vol environment is hard. Um, You know, it's almost even harder in an environment where rates are just so zigzag, like we've seen with the treasury market and so data dependent. Um, you know, that's why I think I've tried to focus most of our energies on you know, what's sort of changing in our space. And the constant really seems to be you know, the shifting landscape of how asset management is being approached by different firms. Um, and I think that's why we're so excited to have you on today, right? One of the areas, obviously, of extreme interest to us has been SMA space. We've had a couple of different podcasts looking at it from different angles. So I was hoping you could sort of just give us a brief overview of you know, what Investor Tools is. Um, what sort of services you guys offer and why it's important uh, right now for the SMA space. Yeah, I'm glad you said brief because I could probably go on, on and on. 
Uh, you can take as much time as you need, but the, no, no, it's good. More people's eyes to glaze over or ears to glaze over more. No, so. no, we'll we'll keep it we'll keep it uh, manageable here. So, uh, investor tools, we're a fixed income uh, management software provider. We've been around uh, for quite some time, um, and we started out focusing on serving, uh, I guess, the fixed income market, specifically the tax exempt side of the market. Uh, really serving fund companies in the uh, late 80s, believe it or not, um, and then grew our uh, kind of suite to uh, beyond portfolio management to serve credit analysts with our, uh, so so actually the first thing I was talking about was our, our focus around our product called Perform. We have a secondary yeah. product that's uh, called Credit Scope that pair, kind of pairs up with that and kind of loops in the credit analysis workflow and then we have uh, some index and benchmark technology called Custom Index Manager. And so all of that initially was really um, created to serve the portfolio management uh, process. Um, and now we've really grown into serving portfolio management, order management, and now execution management. But um, ultimately, I would say that we started out focused on fund portfolio management. Then around 15 years ago, the, when the trajectory of the market really changed and you started to see, uh, I would say, and it's not the advent of SMA, but it was certainly a kind of the initial um, beginning of the ascent of SMA, of the, of the SMAs in uh, the tax exempt phase, certainly. Um, we were asked a lot more questions about that. We had clients who had been uh, fund managers who were leaving and starting their own SMA firms or SMA businesses mm -hmm. and spinning those up. And they asked us to come alongside them and uh, develop tools to help make that uh, more efficient. So you've actually had direct feedback from clients as far as like, you've actually built a product for what the market needs rather than sort of answering nebulous questions of what the market may want or what sort of a data provider thinks they may want. No, that's exactly right. I mean, we've got our client base, a little bit about us on that side, I guess, is when we, so we're a little bit cautious about uh, kind of what and how we talk about it, but um, our last assessment or estimate um, had us had our clients um, managing around between six and seven hundred billion in SMA accounts, leveraging Perform. And then, uh, if you add up all of the SMA and funds uh, in the tax exempt space, even we're pretty sure that that's north of a trillion dollars in AUM. Yeah, I, it's, it's super interesting you just brought that up, right? We did an estimate at the end of last year. Um, Karen helped put that together, and I, I think we estimated it was almost like 750 billion in uh, municipal SMA products. And I know that's grown over the first half of this year, and, and so we were thinking it was, you know, upwards of like 950. So you guys almost have like an 80 to 90 percent market share of all of those assets. Yeah, we've got we've got significant wow. market share in that in that, and so we've got, uh, yeah. It, the bottom line is yes. <laughs> okay. To come, I didn't really bring it back to your question. The real question was, so are we building this based on feedback? That was really the supposed to be the point of that answer. So yeah. I tend to wander a little. I'm sorry about that, but the point is, absolutely, um, everything that we do is guided by client feedback. And what one of the things that we've the position we take is that we aren't the experts. Sure, we're decent at software, but the experts really are the people sitting in the seat. And so we've got to listen to them. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say that the growth in competi and competition within the SMA space has, has positively impacted investor tools. 
Yes, uh, certainly. I, we, I think you have a lot, uh, as you have new entrants um, or existing entrants who are kind of looking to grow that business, that, that does tend to benefit us because we have uh, such a market share there that we're probably, uh, I guess we'll, we're certainly a part of that conversation. Being that the market share is so wildly, you know, concentrated on your side of the farm, I, I guess the question in my mind is like, how do you grow your business from there, right? I almost view it as like Bloomberg in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. At some point, you'd want a world where everyone has a terminal, right? So you'd want a world where every, you know, SMA, AUM is in the investor tools sort of universe. You know, where's the growth story for you guys from there? It's a... As you can imagine, that's something that we're always thinking about. How do we grow from here and how do we keep growing? There's a few different paths. Um, One path is certainly, uh, and we've seen this, uh, expanding beyond kind of uh, that tax exempt universe. And we already have done this. We've we've, um, been playing in the taxable universe for a long time, actually. But um, I would say that what we've learned over the past 15 years is that the basic kind of requirements for scaling an SMA business are really the same when it comes to taxable SMA or -hmm. tax exempt SMA. I mean, um, and so our clients and work amongst uh, uh, the vast, I would say, as we started out in tax exempt and kind of excelled there, that has opened the door to opportunity in the taxable space. And so we've got some other large clients now actually who are asking us to really push our historical comfort zone and we're moving out of well, not moving out but they are asking us to serve them in kind of other asset classes um, and kind of coming alongside us and saying look these are the things that we need uh, yeah. in order to be successful here so the one, one client put it this way they said look basically once we have more than a couple thousand accounts in a product we come to you to work with you to see what how we can make it work in your product okay We'd love to know what types of clients do you see embracing your technology and which types have been more resistant? Do you see that a mix is changing over time? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We definitely see uh, things changing over time with clients who are embracing technology. Um, Certainly, one of the things that plays a big role is um, the firm that basically the client firm's uh, kind of just view on whether or not uh, they should use outside technology or outside uh, off-the-shelf type of software. Um, you've got certain clients who historically have just been reticent to do that. And I think that they view, um, or certain firms, I should say, that that view uh, their own kind of in-house technology and kind of building their own software as a competitive advantage. And you've got other firms that just have a completely different view on it and look and say, look, 80% of the things that we do as uh, an asset manager are really the same, uh, overlapping with the, those same 80% that other asset managers are doing. And that's not the things that we're doing that are like in the, pro- the process of either building that software and or uh, operating. That's not how we're trying to add value. The, the value add by those firms is the other 20%. It's the proprietary uh, knowledge and and uh, how they're going to position their portfolios, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, certainly we've we've seen uh, differences across the landscape of uh, kind of the asset management marketplace, um, and that have affected their willingness to kind of consider off-the-shelf software. 
I mean, before before we get to my other point, I mean, just sort of piggybacking on that, costs are always a consideration. Have you guys seen a lot of, you know, downward pressure as far as, you know, fees or costs, um, you know, as trading revenue and, and AUM has been challenged, you know, during the pandemic? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's been there's been quite a bit of pressure. I think, the, and then you have this competing pressure of infl- of kind of inflation, um, and it, another kind of thing that we can talk about at some point if you want is uh, if you think about the inputs as a software firm, our inputs are are very different than uh, maybe a, an asset management firm. I mean, everybody, every firm in the world now seems to be competing for. Uh, programmer and technology resources. And certainly that's uh, put some upward pressure on, on some of our costs. Um, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. That's And that's been in the face of uh, downward pressure from kind of a client perspective. So we've, we've, we've felt that. Yeah. I think you're just trying to tell us you're making more money than you did last year. Is that your way of saying that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, our, our company is not a is uh is not a high growth company it doesn't tend to be but i would say yeah. that we have been seen uh increasing revenues more or less across our history so so that's technically yeah. true that's a good thing um all right so i want to take like a, a step back you know the, the listener base for our podcast tends to be extremely diverse very different levels of sophistication when it comes to the muni space the fixed income space and i know we sort of jumped in through a lot of terms around but you know, to the extent that you can, and I'm asking a lot right now, sort of try and explain to a novice listener what it is when we talk about SMA or separately managed account and why scaling or growing that business from an existing or a new entrant is so hard. Sure. We'd love to do that. So um, I think the Part of the answer to the second piece, which is why is it hard to scale this business, it is obviously related to what exactly it is. So with separately managed accounts, the, the nature of the beast is that um, each client does have their own account. And so you're going to, a typical SMA provider um, is going to be managing not 10 or 100 accounts, you're talking about well into the thousands of accounts if you once you have an established mature business. Um, the other, the thing about SMA is we we speak about it as if it's one single thing. Um, yeah. There's actually diversity within SMA. So I it, when I'm thinking about actually going to talk to somebody about their SMA business, I like to try to qualify well, what part of the SMA space do they play in? But I think today we're predominantly talking more about like retail SMA where, you're, where you've got account sizes anywhere from as small as maybe, I've seen them as small as 100,000 uh, in AUM, all the way up yeah. to uh, maybe somewhere in that one to two million space. And then once you're in that one to two million space, then you start transitioning into kind of a high net worth type of a SMA account. And that's going to okay. go from that one to two, maybe even 5 million up to uh, maybe 50 million. And then once you end up getting up in, in that, I guess, maybe even 25 million, once you're in that 25 and up range, you're in kind of an ultra high net worth or an institutional account type of a space. And that's how, when I'm thinking about SMA, every one of those um, kind of a AUM ranges really represents um, a different segment of the SMA mm-hmm. marketplace. And so, uh, and when I'm thinking about our clients and uh, who are participating in those different parts of the market, and some of them participate in all, like they're, the demands on them and, and the requirements for managing those accounts are just slightly different. 
uh, when you're when you're managing a retail SMA versus a uh, ultra high net worth SMA. The requirements and tip and the size of those accounts, um, it's going to require a different number of really positions, and yeah. whether or not there it's a kind of an income focused SMA account or a uh, total return focused SMA account. Those are there's probably two different strategies in play there. I would imagine the account, like the sheer amount of just accounts is much more on the retail side than in the high net worth side, right? Is, is that sort of where you've seen much of your growth? Like people just waving the white flag of capitulation and calling you guys in to help? Absolutely. I think that's a trend that we've seen over the past decade is um, I think early on in kind of the lifespan of SMA, it's it was really focused on that high net worth and ultra high net worth. So you saw fewer accounts and fewer might've been in the 500 to 1,000 space, but you saw fewer accounts and you saw them being managed a little bit more like um, their own separate funds. And I think people could, when you are when you have fewer accounts, it means that you're doing fewer trades to service those accounts typically. And so I think that the workflow is a little more manageable. As um, the account size, the average account size has decreased over time and yeah. people have gone uh, and kind of, you've seen retail kind of explode that puts enough pressure on people's operations where they go, look, I don't know how we're going to be able to do this. And that's when they really bring us in. If they haven't yet, they bring us in and say, okay, other people have had success doing this. What is it you're doing? And that, and that's when we get into talking about scale and efficiency and, and efficient workflows. And that's really what we bring in. Is, is there going to be a time at some point where everything is just, has a homogenous look to it then like if you guys are sort of called in as the cavalry each and every time someone wants to grow or get into this space right i would imagine while the account compositions might look different the approach is probably very similar so i would then, say the, the approach yeah. absolutely is similar i mean yeah. the 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 workflow for scaling out sma or actually the workflow for just managing sma is is very similar and, um, and that kind of goes back to that 80%, the 80% of, of uh, what people do uh, when they're managing SMA is all effectively the same. Like the, the, the tasks involved in maintaining uh, effectively uh, an SMA product are the same. It's the 20% of how you position them and what you're specifically trying to achieve with the, in those accounts that, that really varies. You know, so when you're looking at that, would you dissuade a new firm a new entrant into the space from actually trying to build anything at this point? I mean, because I would imagine that you've seen some, some pretty horrific attempts at, you know, in-house IT and sort of cobbling together a solution. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, this is not really my world, but I can imagine you walk into some real rat's nests um, and trying to sort of undo, um, you know, a, a very, you know, what at that time was probably a good attempt at trying to get into the space before you sort of implement your process. Yeah, I think over time, as you can imagine, we we've come in and seen some pretty interesting stuff, and um, a lot of a lot of uh, attempts at creative solutions. I would say that, um, yeah, I, I would absolutely dissuade someone from spending their firm's resources trying to put it all together. If we can, if if you have an uh, an opportunity at kind of to sign up for something that's cost effective and that handles 80% of all the operations kind of out of the box. And then we'll, yeah. we actually have a custom layer in our software. So we can get you 
rest of the way there. All the, your proprietary stuff, you don't abandon that by signing up for our software. The whole idea is that we accommodate that. And so, um, yeah, I know you're, you're not really giving anything up. I wasn't expecting you to tell people to go build their own. <laughs> I, figured you, I figured you weren't, but I mean, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say, look, if that's really what, where you feel like you can uh, differentiate, like go for it. But yeah. at the same time, um, I th like personally, as you can imagine, I, I think there's better ways to invest. Yeah. And, and I've been at two shops in a previous life where I, I've sort of been on the other side where, where they've tried to go about the SNA business, you know, using, let's say, Excel. And then inevitably, you guys have come in and done implementation and, you know, sort of, sort of seen a, a, a magnitude of change, if you can imagine, uh, from the before and after. Can you uh, explain to us a little bit about how Perform helps grow a business? Somebody like me who has not, you know, I've heard a lot about Perform, but I haven't used it myself. Very good question. Sure, absolutely. So um, when you're when a firm is managing SMA, typically they're, they'll, they, they don't even have one strategy. They've got a handful of different uh, flavors of SMA accounts. So if they're going and, and saying, hey, would you like us to to manage an SMA account for you, you'll, they'll say, yep, okay, I'm interested. And you'll like, as the asset management firm will say, okay, these are different like flavors that we offer. We might have a short intermediate style product. We might have an income-based ladder style product or one or more. Uh, they might have a two-year, a four-year, a six-year ladder structure. You're going to talk to them about how you want your portfolio uh, effectively, your money to be invested. And that's going to be based on kind of different frameworks that they have. So on our, on our side of the fence, um, the way that what we do is we we try to make it very easy to do that. We give them um, the ability to kind of really house all of those structural frameworks. And and I and I said structure, and I'll come back to that in a second. But we have the ability to house uh, all those structural frameworks. So when when our clients sign on a new SMA account, they say, well, what type is it? Well, that type is an attribute of the account and effectively that account can inherit a starting point from uh, kind of a, a different record there. So basically what, what we're going to do is we're going to make it very easy for each account to kind of understand, for the asset manager to know where each account is positioned, how they want each account to be positioned. If there's any kind of custom uh, nuance maybe to that portfolio, what they've agreed to, how they've agreed to manage that portfolio. And then we can, help them to go and source the bonds that will get that portfolio invested in accordance with its specific guidelines, limits, and then layer on um, any kind of portfolio manager conviction for how that thing should be invested. So, and what we do is we do that on the individual account basis, but then we mm -hmm. aggregate all of those um, kind of needs up so that to effectively deliver a cohesive starting point to a shopping list so that it becomes uh, more efficient to invest that portfolio. What would you say is a primary use case for Perform? Portfolio construction, risk metrics, management, uh, return attribution, pre-trade, price estimates. What, what are you seeing the primary use cases for, for Perform? So the, it's, it's really interesting. Um, primary, I would say, so it's used for all those things. Mm -hmm. But uh, especially in like attribution is in conjunction with our index product custom index manager. But um, if you had say primary and we're talking, uh, we're focusing on SMA, it's 
it's portfolio construction. Mm. It's uh, portfolio. Por it's knowing how your portfolio is positioned, monitoring uh, its its construction as compared to how you want it to be positioned, and then going out and actually building that portfolio. If you could just just kind of pick that apart a little bit more, yeah. just for people again not familiar, right? When you say like portfolio construction, like mm -hmm. I understand it, Karen understands it, but for someone not familiar, right? I have an SMA platform with let's say a thousand accounts. Mm -hmm. I am investing in muni bonds. So how, I, you know, I have all this cash. I want to go buy something. How is Perform helping me? Got it. So actually, and and what the situation you you stated that's that's every day for an SMA manager, as yeah. they've got thousands of accounts. And yes. um, the, the the well, they got thousands of accounts, especially once they've been in business for a little while. And um, not only do they have a thousand accounts, very few of those accounts are in the, exactly the same state. Yeah. And what I mean, I don't mean state uh, like domicile. I mean like status. Like some of them have recently had cash infusions. Some of them, uh, like the one the one hilarious thing about SMA is that for whatever reason, uh, end clients tend to treat it like a checking account for whatever reason. Uh, there's, yep. a, there's an aspect of that. And so that's like, oh, surprise, um, you need to sell some bonds because there's uh, money flowing out. So there's so the nature of the beast is that there's cash to invest, there's cash to be raised, and you got to keep track of that across all thousand accounts. And so um, what the way that perform really helps is it know it keeps track of where each one of those accounts are at. It uh, will so actually, I think this is a good point to get into structure. Is it okay if yeah. I talk about structure right now? So I think, um, especially especially in tax exempt in the tax exempt space, maybe what varies uh, from other spaces is that you don't. There's so many different securities out there, and they're in limited supply. And so when you're managing thousands of portfolios uh, in the tax exempt space here, and even if they have a common goal, if you will, or that you're trying to achieve the same uh, ultimate kind of performance and objectives, you're not going to be able to buy that the same securities for every portfolio. So what you're going to do is you're going to say, okay, I want every portfolio to have approximately the same structure. And when we say structure, we're talking about things like um, either maturity profile or curve exposure. So you're thinking about duration positioning. You're thinking about uh, kind of your coupon, you're thinking about a credit uh, or ratings type of uh, yeah. kind of exposure, things like that. Um, and so you've got all these desired uh, structures, structural elements. And so you're going to be buying a variety of different bonds to ultimately try to create uh, similar portfolios on a structure basis. And so the, the going, the prevailing thought is that if you can have similar structure on a um, duration, rating, and sector basis, you're going to have pretty similar performance. Those are your predominant drivers of return. And there's other aspects, and we can talk into, about that at some point. And, and people will disagree with me, and that's fine. Um, but those are your three main kind of things that people are paying the most attention to when they're trying to construct different portfolios. And anyway, what happens is our clients will come in and say, these are this is our strategy. This, these are our objectives and constraints. And um, what we do is we take we get a feed right from either the IBOR or the accounting system, and we know every tax lot that that uh, so every position that the portfolio holds, and we know the desired structure, and we kind of help the 
portfolio managers and the traders deduce well, more or less where are the where are their differences. And so being able to kind of look across those thousands of accounts and identify those areas that need attention. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the, the, the key thing. That's how we, that's what maybe the core of how, how we help people scale is we keep track of all of the different uh, areas where things need attention. And we try to um, not only bubble those up, but also kind of figure out where there's overlapping needs so that you can address and improve portfolios um, in the most efficient way possible. So just, I want to try and sort of sum this up and tell me if I'm correct. Yeah. So I have a thousand accounts, all have generally a, a different composition, but they all have cash. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to use Perform to figure out a almost like a best fit bond solution. So to give me an idea of what is going to work for the majority of those accounts so I can get my cash invested at one time, right? I'm trying to figure out where on the curve, how much each account's going to get as far as, you know, cash, you know, invested, um, you know, what sort of couponing and trying to meet income needs, et cetera, and performs able to sort of like, and, and this is obviously a very rudimentary take, spit out an answer. And it's not that simple, but is that... Does that sort of sum it up? Yeah, I mean, that sums it up. It spits out an answer with it gives you a sense of what you might need. But then when you go yeah. find those bonds that are candidates, the other thing that it really does to, to really help them make things more efficient is like you as a, let's say hypothetically, you're sitting in the seat and you're the portfolio manager and you're looking at, hey, here's a handful of bonds that, I, that seem to meet these yeah. objectives that I have, these open needs. As an SMA manager, you can't show any preference to any one portfolio. You need to be able to um, systematically choose, like, to figure out which bonds uh, are going to go into which portfolio, and then you need to have a, a rationale for that. Uh, and it needs to, and it, and it, you need to be able to show that you're not showing preference to any one portfolio or any other. And so, um, you're gonna that, that whole process is called allocation. And so one of the things yeah. that really moved the needle for our clients early on was that we we uh, built a, an allocator. And so we have something we call rules-based allocation where the portfolio manager and the trader can go in and say, okay, this is my methodology. And so you referred back to actually Excel. Early on, we would see a lot of folks trying to flip through different Excel tabs and saying, well, what if I gave this portfolio this bond? How does it yep. move the needle? And um, we systematize that whole process. The beauty of it is that it, we don't have a black box, click the button and we do something like what we want to do. We give the portfolio manager the ability to say, this is my allocation methodology. This is how I go about it. But then when they, once they've established that, they can kind of just click the button and run through their methodology. And we can take that whole allocation process, which used to maybe take hours and mm -hmm. boil it down to 10 seconds. Almost like a giant goal seek in a sense, right? Right. Yes. And then and again, and then, very simplistic view. It is not a goal seek solution, but I'm just trying to sort of give people a flavor if they're familiar with Excel, you know, sort of what the broader goal is um, as far as like the user interface in the software and, and trying to solve for problems that these accounts have. I think this is a good segue into, into credit scope. Can you tell us a little bit about how it links together with Perform? Sure. So uh, I've mentioned, yeah, I've thrown a, a few product names out there. So yeah. at Investor Tools, um, 
we really think of investor tools, our products are as a suite, if you will. They're all really designed to work together. So you have Perform, which is focused on portfolio management, allocation, compliance, things like that. Um, you have Credit Scope, which is our kind of credit analysis system. It's really designed to deliver um, fundamental data that's used to facilitate uh, a credit analyst's job to that credit analyst and in, um, also to give them a workflow to help uh, kind of competitively and comparatively score credits, keep track of their exposure to different names, and then keep track of when they last reviewed a credit and uh, to help store all their um, kind of in their individual write-ups. So we're not delivering research, but it's a system that's used for analysts to conduct their research and house it and, and um, keep track of their processes and perform and credit scope. And then that other system I'd mentioned, Custom Index Manager, really are all designed to live in the same ecosystem. They can be used independently, at least credit scope and perform can sit separately. But if you're using them together, they're actually literally different parts of the same system. I always thought the neat thing about credit scope and, and look, obviously Bloomberg has a tool, you know, for, for credit mm -hmm. monitoring and, and our financial analysis data sets. But what is interesting to me is that, you know, credit scope can almost run reverse screens on a portfolio. And I think that was sort of very important. I would imagine to a lot of clients during the pandemic, when everyone was sort of trying to get some edge as far as like what the next shoot of drop was. Um, talk to us a little bit about like, how, how I could leverage Credit Scope to sort of look through thousands of accounts and, and identify trends. No, absolutely. So um, since Credit Scope and Performer are in that same ecosystem, when you're using them together, they, you, can, we, you can see right through from uh, that obligor level, the credit level, right through to uh, all your portfolio levels. So you can, you can to your point, you can see uh, everywhere that you hold a name. You can see uh, everywhere that uh, like all the gain loss information about where you hold it, but then also yeah. um, to the extent that you're doing any kind of credit analysis and you're doing uh, competitive analysis, maybe you're comparing credits or you're doing any kinds of uh, financial analysis, you can say, okay, um, which, well, if I step back, actually specifically around uh, 2020 uh, and after post-March 2020, uh, kind of the, the whole, uh, kind of market volatility that we saw with, um, with COVID and, and afterwards, we released in credit scope uh, some stress tests. And so our, what our clients were doing with those stress testing were they were stress testing different sectors based on um, some possible scenarios that they might see in a post COVID kind of environment. And they were identifying those credits of concern and they could see exactly where they held every one of those credits of concern, what their aggregate position was and what the structure of those underlying bonds were that they, where they had some exposure. And so I think that's effectively what you're getting at with the uh, kind of reverse screening there. Okay, nice. And do you have trading capabilities through the platform now? So, uh, yes. So we have that thing called the Investor Tools Dealer Network. That is um, really a consolidation of the secondary market. So we've got connectivity with uh, electronic connectivity with uh, three different ATSs and then seven different dealers direct today. And so th that's predominantly used for participating in the secondary market on kind of buying bonds today. We also, for actually for longer than we've had the Investor Tools Dealer Network, we have what I would call order routing connectivity, yeah. where um, clients can uh, kind of either 
send things, uh, the route orders that they would want to normally for bonds that they would want to sell. So for instance, um, we've got connectivity to Bloomberg Fit. Uh, it uses a fixed connection and, and clients can say, oh, you know what, I want to put a list of bonds out here. They can choose those positions in uh, perform, create some tickets and then route them over to Bloomberg Fit uh, and, and then other kind of similar ATS platforms. And how is your uh, trading platform different from, from competitors? So uh, what's really interesting is that, and I guess in our our trading platform, I guess I would I'm, we don't call it a trading platform. I think of it's more like an execution layer. It's I think that what sets there. it apart. It, it, what sets it apart is that it's um, embedded right in the system that they're using for their portfolio management. It's you, it's literally in perform. So what's what's unique is that our clients have put all of their proprietary data right into this system. They've been living in this system. We are the ecosystem where they do all their really front office work, certainly. And so they're managing their portfolios, their, the, the, how much cash they have to spend is in there, where they need to have the cash is in there. The tool they use to allocate bonds and figure out fit of uh, security with different portfolios there. So now adding on this layer where we've consolidated the secondary market and that where they can participate, they can execute right from this layer. Um, that's been very powerful because what it's done is the, the old workflow was our clients would look and say, okay, I need, I know generally speaking the kinds of bonds, then they would kind of swivel over to a different part of their desk and say, well, let me go see if I can find some out in one of many different platforms. Or they would go, you know, they go see, okay, I've got a thousand IBs. Let's go see what's going on uh, uh, from, from my various sales coverage. And they would go take those candidate securities, stick them into our software, and then they would run uh, kind of pre-allocation. They're like, oh, well, these are the ones I want to engage on. And that process, while it worked, was not as efficient as, okay, you've got a consolidated secondary market right in there alongside those kind of open inquiries, open orders. Um, we can, we can, there's some very powerful workflows that we've created to help get to the right bonds. And for credit scope, I mean, look, a, a lot of the job of a, a credit analyst is, is continuing monitoring or approving new mm -hmm. credits, right? Um, you know, we pride ourselves on having, you know, a lot of curated tear sheets on the terminal and through our BI publications. But I mean, are you able to sort of do something similar with that tool? I'm glad you said that because I totally overlooked even talking about that, which is the beauty welcome. of that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the, the beauty of uh, actually how we've got this whole investor tools dealer network and that secondary piece is that um, it's not just tied into perform, it's tied into the ecosystem. And so yeah. it, when, when a client of mine is looking at uh, something that's in the secondary, they see um, not only the traditional market data of, okay, what, how much is available, which security, how much, what's the price, that type of stuff. We've enriched yeah. that with all of their um, what kind of descript terms and conditions, but then also they're seeing all of that credit data. So we we've got a map right to the credit from that QSIP, and so we can set, we can show them what's your uh, internal score. When's the last time your analyst reviewed it? Is this on your an internal approval list if you're managing that? Um, and for what products? 
Um, do I own the same name? And which portfolios do I own this name? What's my uh, kind of weight in this? We can even integrate it uh, alongside the index and say, okay, what's my relative weight of an obligor? Uh, yeah. it's, it's in the index. And then what's my duration in that obligor versus what's the index's duration of that obligor and what's this going to do to it? Is that more on the custom index manager side or is that more on the, the credit scope side, right? Because I mean, you, I could see that sort of falling under both descriptions. It, it, the answer is yes, to your point. Okay. Um, the, the, the custom index manager side, that's what uh, clients need to have that in order to uh, have constituent level index data in the ecosystem. Yeah. But then credit scope, that's the map of QSIP to credit. And so putting those two together alongside each other allows you to have that obligor map of the index. And then when you've got that and you've got perform, now you're looking across all three tools really yeah. at, at uh, integrated data sets that allows you to really get a, a deeper look. Um, and that's probably more important when you're managing funds and institutional accounts and ultra high net worth. I mean, with a, with a retail SMA, if you've got a, well, I'm gonna just say uh, $250,000 kind of quote unquote, smaller retail SMA portfolio, Yeah, you, the, a PM's probably got somewhere between, uh, I don't know, 10 and 20 positions. You're not blueprinting an index exactly with 10 and 20 positions. You're, yeah. you're, you're getting, you're, you're trying to get as close as you can and you're trying to keep it consistent across your product. Yeah. I mean, look, and like you said, consistency, right? You don't want a lot of performance dispersion that throws everything off. And, um, you know, so, I know we're running, you know, a little bit long on time, but I, I did want to talk a little bit about uh, perform for securities dealers because sure. as much as I know about investor tools, this is something new to me and I thought it was really interesting. And just to sort of give my take on it for what it's worth, right? I've always viewed the investor tools product suite as primarily a buy side solution. So it was super interesting, you know, as we were getting prepared for the podcast to see that you guys had um, a specific sort of sub-product just focused on the sell side. And I don't know how many people know this because we, we talked to, you know, sort of our, our, our muni chat leading up to the webinar and we didn't hear one person bring this up. So I'm just not sure if it's like brand awareness or everybody just sort of is hyper-focused on other things, but I thought it'd be interesting for you to sort of highlight and talk about. Sure. No, thanks. And yeah, we've had perform FSD actually, um, and like you said, for securities dealers, that goes, that actually goes way back. We've had that for a long time. Um, yeah. And it shows what I know. No, it's uh, <laughs> what it shows is, is a truth, which is that um, we don't, we're not great at talking about ourselves. Yeah. And, uh, and that's fine. We, we're, we're, we're working on it. We're going to, we're, we're stepping up our marketing game here, but um, what, what FSD is really all about is communicating um it's a vehicle that allows dealers to receive uh, buy side portfolio positions uh, so that they can analyze those portfolios and really make better trade recommendations to their buy side uh, counterparts. And so, yeah. what I mean, it was the genesis of this was once we had really developed a significant market share uh, in on the buy side we realized and I mean, we had conversations that we could really facilitate better communication between the buy side and the sell side. And what you traditionally had was um, like prior to this, you had people kind of basically making spreadsheets of matchers and they're like, here, here's a oh, list of matchers. Let me send it to you. Oh, and, and we said, I think we can do better. 
so what we've done is we've given our, our buy side clients to have the all have the ability to post their portfolios for dealers and they can do that selectively. They don't necessarily have to blast it to the entire marketplace. They can say, okay, these are folks that we have special relationships with or, or whatever, and they can post their portfolios and they can do that um, on a live type of a basis on a like today basis, or they can post that kind of historically because they all have different kind of compliance requirements. So for governing what they're allowed to share. Um, and so the system's able to allow them to accommodate that. But then we also uh, have additional data sets that we uh, have collected and, and redistribute there. So ultimately a dealer receives um, thousands of client portfolios or of, of portfolios that are out there that they can then use buy side like tools to analyze uh, right. understand. And then that actually will also integrate with credit scope. And so they can see that through that same type of credit lens and that helps them to uh, make trade recommendations to kind of their counterparties. Yeah. I mean, I love the description. It was spend your time proposing value added trades rather than collecting holdings from spreadsheets and emails. And look, I, I think that as far as the tools that Bloomberg has, you know, like IMGR and, 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 pick and, and the ability to sort of data scrape, I think that's fantastic. I just think this you know, sort of does this in, in a, maybe like a different ecosystem and maybe a slicker mm -hmm. interface that people might be more comfortable with, uh, especially like not everybody has a terminal. So something to keep in mind as well. I have one final question for you, James. Um, I know we talked earlier about, you know, growth in, in SMAs and how we've seen it growth uh, exponentially over recent years. And I just want to hear your take on whether there is still room for growth in SMEs. Uh, yeah, I think that there's still significant room for growth in SMEs. I don't know that we're going to have a, a repeat of the past 15 years in the next 15 years where we, uh, that kind of the level of growth where we go from effectively like zero to a trillion dollars in 15 years. I don't know that we'll go to 2 trillion in the next 15, but certainly think that there's capacity uh, for growth and significant growth. Uh, as obviously we're making things more efficient. I think that that helps. I think that uh, means that there's the ability in the marketplace to manage many more accounts. Uh, I also just think that, especially right now, the macro side of things um, make it make owning uh, owning bonds pretty interesting. So I, I think that that's going to drive it in the short term. But longer term, I think that the uh, ability to have your own kind of portfolio bonds and the ability to uh, manage that in a tax sensitive way uh, probably continues to push uh, and really to facilitate and foster growth in the SMA space. This is absolutely fantastic. Um, James, we really appreciate you being here today. Um, I hope for all our listeners, you, you came away with a little bit of a deeper understanding, one, about investor tools and their product suite, but just how truly complex the separately managed account space is. I think that it gets a knock as being overly simplistic, but it could be overly complicated if you sort of take a deeper look and understand just how many moving parts there are. Um, but again, thank you so much for being here. And until next time, this is Masters of the Universe. Thanks.